Welcome to the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University, four blocks from the White House. I'm Stephen Hess, and this is the fourth program in a series of conversations on the presidential uh, transition that's modeled after my book, What Do We Do Now? A Workbook for the President-Elect. I am joined once again by my colleague uh, at GW, Marvin Kalb, who is the Edward R. Morrow Professor Emeritus at Harvard, former moderator of Meet the Press, and now the Welling Presidential Fellow here at, uh, at Brookings, uh, excuse me, <laughs> at, at, <clears throat> I'm also at Brookings. Uh, <laughs> the Welling Presidential Fellow, Fellow. yes, at, at GW, and he also is the uh, host of the Kalb Report here. We're again very pleased that uh, our conversation is being uh, broadcast live uh, by uh, our friends at C-SPAN. Today, uh, if you were, any of us, were reading the Washington Post this morning, this is the article that would have started the 111th Congress began yesterday with debates over how to ease the nation's worsening recession and to fight a pair of wars overseas, adding a sense of gravity and purpose to a day normally dedicated to symbolism and the swearing in of members. Veterans as well as newcomers to the House and Senate said the immensity of the problems the nation faces created an opportunity to move beyond the bitter partisanship battles of the last decades or conversely to descend into legislative gridlock that would further damage a body already suffering from historically low approval ratings. Senator Christopher Dodd, there's something transformational happening here. It's the kind of year history, historians will write about. Hmm. Well, uh, when historians write about this year, what will be at the core uh, of the 111th Congress, uh, but the relationship between the White House and the Congress uh, and the congressional relations run there. And that is, of course, the subject of our conversation today. Representing the President of the United States to the Congress uh, and uh, the Congress to the President is a job that takes a special talent. Some would say uh, it's an art form. The grand master of this art was the late Bryce Harlow, who served first in the White House under Dwight Eisenhower. It was Harlow who was the model uh, for the section of my book on picking uh, your presidential lobbyist. The heir to Bryce uh, is William Timmons Sr. And when I asked him to recommend panelists for today's program, he gave me just three names three former White House aides <clears throat> who form the gold standard in this field by which we will judge the eventual record of Barack Obama. All three accepted my invitation. And here's something quite remarkable. These three gentlemen have served every president of the United States since Richard Nixon, with one exception, Jimmy Carter, and if you read my book, you'll know that Jimmy Carter had the worst congressional relations of any modern president. <laughs> the, uh, 
in order that they were around. The first uh, is um, my old colleague, Tom C. Corlogus. Uh, His Excellency, I can call you Excellency because uh, Tom has also been the U.S. Ambassador to Belgium. He, he rates that title. Uh, he was there at the White House uh, under Nixon and Ford, uh, and then uh, was the Director of Congressional Relations for President Ronald Reagan during his transition. Uh, he uh, is now the Strategic Advisor to D.L.A. Piper. And here's the remarkable thing that I didn't know about you, Tom, but changes my view of you entirely. Before this all started, you were a journalist. <laughs> you were with the New York Herald Tribune, the Long Island Press, uh, and the Salt Lake City Tribune, and the Associated Press. Well, <clears throat> all right, if that's to be. The next uh, is Howard Pastor. And uh, Howard is now the executive vice president uh, of WPP Group. Uh, and he was the assistant to President uh, Clinton and director of the White House Office of Legislative Affairs. I want to say one other thing about uh, my, my friend Howard. He is also the co-chair of the Council on American Politics here at George Washington University. We welcome back a colleague of ours, Howard. And finally, uh, Nicholas E. Kaleo. And he is the executive vice president, global government affairs uh, for Citicorp. Uh, we, we had to explain all, our, or we'll never explain, all those initials like uh, DLA uh, uh, or WPP. You're just going to have to accept that they're very powerful here in Washington. Uh, however, Citicorp needs no introductions to us. Citigroup. Citigroup, you now are the Citigroup. OK. Uh, and he was uh, the assistant to the president uh, for legislative affairs, first for George H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, and then later between 19, uh, uh, January 2001 and January 2003 uh, for George W. Bush. Um, this is quite a group, Marvin, that, that I'm turning over to you. Uh, and uh, see what you have to ask them. I'm as pressed <laughs> as can be. <laughs> we shall get started. Um, Steve has already indicated uh, in his lead-in about the historic nature of this particular moment in Washington and in the nation. Uh, the first African-American president is going to be sworn in shortly. Uh, the Congress came into business again yesterday, the 111th. And one has a sense, there's just a feel of electricity in the air. And I'm wondering if you were back in your job, or even thinking right now that you're the man who has to uh, give guidance to the president-elect, what are the sorts of things that you would tell him right now about what he should be doing with the Congress? Um, and why don't we start with Tom? Well, first thing I'd say to him, well done so far. Well done, because he's done what? He's, he's gone to the Hill. He went up and met with the Speaker and the uh, Majority Leader yesterday. Uh, he has uh, schmoozed the Congress. Uh, there's no end to the time that he has to budget for that operation at the beginning. Uh, he needs to go uh, talk to the committee chairman, have them down. Uh, I remember during President Reagan's uh, transition, we brought committee chairs down 
when he was uh, staying across the street at Blair House to meet with the new president to discuss things. Uh, I tell you, uh, he's off to a good start uh, with his appointments and with the way he started up on the Hill. Howard, what is your judgment here? And I, I noticed that the president-elect arrives in Washington on a Sunday night. First thing Monday morning, there he is with the House Majority Leader. And so he's sensitive to all of this, but he also invited the Republican leadership to come on in. Well, he met first separately with the Speaker right. and the Senate Majority Leader, and then he met with the Joint Leadership, which I think was carefully uh, orchestrated. Uh, one of the things that I would say to him is that the Democrats on the Hill, including Speaker Pelosi and Leader Reid, the committee chairs, they're being asked to give up influence. When they stand against a Republican president, they're in charge of the Democratic position. They can do what they want. Now they have a new leader, a party leader, and they have to give up a measure of their independence and their authority to work with their leader. Is that done grudgingly? Well, I, I think it's done um, cautiously, <laughs> I, I think is the answer. But I think Nick had probably encountered the same thing in 2001. Republicans took control of the Congress in 1995. They had six years uh, in which they were juxtaposed to Bill Clinton, and they could do pretty much as they wanted. I mean, they would have to negotiate certain things. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, when <coughs> President Bush arrived, well, darn it, they had to take their cues from the White House. And so I think I would say to the president-elect today, remember, these folks, not just the leadership, but the committee chairs, are being asked to give back something to, to wait for you to propose a health bill, for you to propose an energy bill, for you to propose an economic stimulus bill. And we need to bring them into this process lest they feel excluded because at the end of the day, we don't have a parliamentary system and you can't count on them. Nick, what is your sense of the way in which Obama has up to this point handled his congressional relationship? I agree. I think he has done extraordinarily well. I mean, I think what you would want to tell him is what he's doing. Reach out, reach out early. I think it's critical. He's got a, he's got a great opportunity. You define the relationship oftentimes right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. and, but you can't make it a one-off. So the, the, the meetings, the outreach can't be a one-off. You try to make them steady. And in the way he's done it, he's done it early before he's president. President Bush, uh, 41 and 43, both did that. It serves a great purpose because you do have to bring them in. And Howard's right, it's not a parliamentary system. And they can do things uh, either before you or against you. And they can run against you at home or they can run with you. Right now, he's at, what, 70% approval rating or higher? The more friends he tries to make now, the better off he will be because he's making them at a time when he doesn't need to make them, essentially. Hmm. So it means more, in a sense. And I think he's done very well to go see first his own party, because Howard's right. There will be tension there. There's always tension between a president and Congress. It's built into their, to our constitutional system. And he's just as likely to have his first outbreak be with his own party, for the reasons that Howard mentioned, than he is with the Republicans. And so you want to do that outreach. I would also suggest to him that in addition to doing the leadership, he very quickly move on to do various groups, Republican moderates, what's left within our party of that group, uh, freshmen, the sophomore class, kind of the leaders, and make friends with them because in a sense, on a very clinical basis, you want to have relationships with members sometimes independent of their leadership. You've got to look at them as blocks, potential voting blocks mm -hmm. for your issues. 
But the thing that strikes me just after what you just said this, make friends with, that takes time. I mean, it takes time to have lunch and dinner and how are the kids and all of that, and he doesn't have that kind of time. So how, in fact, does the new president, arriving with these 70% approval ratings and probably higher, really allocate time? What kind of advice do you give him? Do you see only committee chairman? Do you see this, this freshman who's just come in who's really terrific and you've got to make a beeline for him or her? How do you arrange that? Well, to pick up on what Nick said, uh, you uh, start with the various groups, the power centers on the Hill. Don't forget something. For the first time, I'm not sure what I'm about to say, probably in history, we have a president, a vice president, and the chief of staff are all Hill people. And five, uh, used to be six till Richardson dropped out, five of the 15 cabinet officers are hillbillies. <laughs> and, and you, so you take that crowd, uh, and they're from the Congress. What happened with uh, President-elect Obama is he didn't come from Arkansas or California or Texas. He had no cadre of people from those states that needed jobs or that he brought with him. We all know the, the Clinton people. We all know the Georgia people, the California people. He had no, he wasn't a governor. He was a senator for a few years. So he came in brand new. And he brought in all these Hill people to, to run his government. Ipso facto, that is gonna make the congressional operations operation in the White House very difficult. Because hillbilly, hill Congress people talk only to gods. They're not going to go talk uh, to, they're going to go to the president. Well, maybe we shouldn't go to him. Okay, we'll go to the vice president. Or we'll go to Rahm Emanuel, who's also a hill person. Or we'll go to the, straight to the cabinet officer. He was my colleague on the committee. So that is going to be a, a big problem. Allocating the time, going back to your, to your question, on how he's going to balance all this. The issues are so heavy and so big on the economy, on the international scene. Uh, he's got to budget a great deal of time to those areas where these people uh, are from on the Hill. Well, this is, but, my, this is my point. Howard, go ahead. I'm well, sorry. I just wanted to say that, that uh, while Tom's raising a legitimate question, the fact of the matter is, is that Phil Shalero, who is going to be in charge of congressional relations in the mm -hmm. White House, he is in charge of the transition congressional relations and will be in charge of the White House, absolutely understands the consequence of having a senator become president, a senator become vice president, uh, a caucus chair become uh, chief of staff, and a multiple uh, uh, Hill people in the cabinet. And this is, this is something that's been talked through. They're sensitive to it. They've worked it out very well. It was very interesting when the economic briefing was done last week by, uh, led by Larry Summers and the other people that are going to be key economic policymakers <coughs> in the new administration, that Phil Shalero was on the panel for the briefing. Okay? They took the it head of congressional relations. It, it says that the White House, incoming White House, and Rahm Emanuel was there when I was there in the Clinton administration, so he knows how it works, are carefully protecting the congressional relations office and sending a message out, you work with Phil. He is important. He's at the table. He's part of the essential decision-making of the White House. And uh, this is something that was, I mean, I, I can say without violating confidence, was something that was thought through to make sure that we 
that the, that the office was properly respected and that Phil was imbued with enough authority to do his job well. Well, you know, you are all sounding very complimentary, and it's, it may well be fully justified, but at the same time, you have what the vice president-elect has described as a mistake when you put out the word, for example, that Leon Panetta is going to be the new director of central intelligence, but you don't tell the person who's going to run the committee. And that seems to me to be an obvious boner. So how do you explain that in light of this wonderful way in which everything is happening? Stuff happens. <laughs> that happens. No, I, Stuff I, happens. I, I think yeah. Howard's right. Inevitably, there are mistakes. It was a mistake to not give advance notice. Uh, there's a variety of reasons why it could have happened. Uh, and you never want that to happen. You know, I always say, you know, with members of Congress, you, you want to consult, consult, consult. And being careful of a conversation that Howard and I had earlier, when I say consult, that doesn't mean they have the right to approve or disapprove of your choices. But you need to talk to them, you need to listen to them, you don't have to take the advice, but you need to consult. And even when you do, you will hear a criticism that you did not do it. So in this case, it was a mistake. If you look at all the things that are going on, uh, the economic package being developed, the health package being developed, getting ready for the inauguration itself, there's a lot of things. I'm sure it just happened, not intentionally. Well, one of the things that, that's interesting to me is how you set up your priorities. I mean, you just indicated something. You've got on January 20th, you know there's going to be an inauguration. You know that there's a terrible crisis in the Middle East. The president-elect has already indicated that though there is only one president at a time, he felt the need yesterday to say something about the Middle East. Okay, and then he's coming in with a huge economic stimulus package, biggest thing he's going to present. But then on top of that, he's already indicated that he wants to make major progress on legislation for health care, uh, the immigration problems. And all. How in God's name is that to be organized? Well, in the first place, they've got to be careful and not overload the circuits. Uh, got the presidential to, circuit presidential, or the congressional? The, the congressional circuits with policy decisions. Yes, we all know those problems exist. He's got to prioritize uh, his policy. He's got to decide that we're going to do these first two or three things right now. Don't send up 10 or 15 like the Clinton people did when they first came in uh -huh. and Carter did when they first came in. So you've got to... Say, number one is the economy. Okay, we see if we can fix that for a while. Then we turn to the Middle East. Then we turn to something else, energy and what have you. If he sends up 10 or 15 uh, Christmas tree ornament things that he wants done right now, uh, he's going to suffer. Well, I think but, he's got a very... Uh, first of all, he understands that you have to be careful. There is a debate that can be had as whether or not if it as as what Steve read out of the paper, what Senator Dodd said, a transformational moment. Right. Is this an opportunity to do a lot? Is it look like 1965 or 1933? Right. Which are the two times in the last century when there were remarkable amount done quickly under new presidents. And uh, there are some who believe uh, because of the nature of the Obama victory, because of the dire economic circumstance, because of his current popularity, because of the increased Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, that it may be a moment when, in fact, you can get a good deal more done than what Tom fairly describes as a more normal course of business. That's one issue. And that debate goes on. I don't have a clearly held view on it, but I think it's a legitimate issue. The second point is, is that 
what the president-elect is doing is he's using the economic stimulus bill. And everybody agrees we need one. They can argue about the pieces, but there's not a soul in town who denies we need something. And he's doing some of his policy stuff through it. So we're going to see some changes in health policy through this bill. We're going to see changes in energy policy through this bill. We're going to see some changes on employment insurance law through this bill. So he's going to get, through the investments he's going to make through the stimulus bill, both to drive the economy, he's going to get a down payment on some of the policy changes he wants long term. But you don't think that that will run afoul of what Tom was warning not, about? Not, not done in, in a measured way in the first, uh, let's say, sworn on the 20th. He will sign the bill before the end of February. And it will have pieces of all of this in it. Uh, I'm confident of that. And so he, he's getting started. And the Republicans will come on board. They're not going to make an issue and block him at this point. Well, you mean, the Republicans are suddenly major players. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the 41 or 42 or whatever it turns out to be uh, become a checkpoint through which all of this has to, has to funnel. They must be participants because if they're not, you saw what happened with the auto bailout at the close of the last session. It didn't pass the Republican uh, muster, so it didn't go. So they've got to rope the Republicans in some way, uh, and there'll be some Democrats that'll go along with it as well. Uh, so all of these things have to go, go through a lot, of, a lot of more hoops than is, than is beginning. And Howard, I'll bet you 10 bucks it doesn't pass by the end of February. And what do you think? Then? You got it. Do you think it's going Steve, to? Steve, you hold the money? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, let, let's, this is an interesting point I, because I, it, it has to do with the speed with which you can actually move this forward. Nick, what would be your judgment? My judgment would be that it, uh, it, it, it can pass by the end of February. I think the imperative is such that it needs to and people will start to get antsy and the markets will start to get antsy if it takes too long. I think the Republicans are important. I think if I were any member of Congress, though, if you want to talk about transformational and if you looked at what the president-elect talked about during his campaign, people are fed up with the Congress. They really are. And they don't want people blocking everything. They would like to see people working together to solve the problems of the country. And that's easy to say. It's very difficult to do. I look at the immediate aftermath of September 11th. And we had this great coming together in bipartisan fashion and clicked off four or five really important bills in the space of about two months. And as each day passed after the first week, week and a half, the rank and file members of both parties started to attack the White House and the leadership because they thought that the Republicans thought that the White House and their leadership were giving too much to the Democrats. The Democrat rank and file thought that Daschle and Gephardt were giving too much away to the Republicans. And you know, it's a difficult proposition. It's a big, diverse country, but there is the opportunity to make that transformation as well. In terms of how much you can do, just because you're doing the stimulus package doesn't mean you can't roll out and start work on your health care plan or your energy plan. I, think, I agree with Tom. I think 10 or 15 is too much. But you can take three, four, five, six major issues. You know, we did that in 2001 in the space of, I think, 12 weeks separated out by you know, I think it was every second Monday. First it was the tax bill, then it was the education reform bill, then I think it was faith-based, and rolled them out like that. You have different committees, different people. It's difficult for the White House, but there are different people in the White House handling those. The, the idea of this being a transformational moment is a very large idea, and it suggests to me anyway that 
you don't do things as usual. That if this be in fact transformational, then maybe you go off the reservation and you begin to think about new ways of approaching a problem. Are there new ways of improving? I mean, you're here because you know about the Congress and the White House. And are, they, are there new ways that ought to be instituted to improve the relationship between the White House and the Hill, given the fact that this is transformational? What do you think, Howard? Or is it all the same? It doesn't matter. You know, from 1789 forward, it's all about relationships and trust. And the method of communication may change. The issues may change. But the ultimate, in the, the nature of the system, I think Nick alluded earlier to the way the Constitution set this thing up. You know, it's not an accident. And as I said earlier, it's not a parliamentary system. And so if you read Federalist Paper Number 10, it talks about, Washington, about the Congress as a place where factions will come to resolve their issues. And if you substitute a special interest for factions, it would describe the world today as it exists. Mm -hmm. And the Congress is meant to be juxtaposed to the White House for the purpose of resolving those issues. And the House and the Senate have different missions. That's why you have two from one and populations in the other. And so that, nothing that has changed. So is there anything new under the sun? I think that the language people use needs to be different than it was in the past. I, I go back to Nick's point about the disrepute in the Congress. You know, President Bush uh, is ending his term with very, very low approval ratings. At the time of the election in November, the Congress had lower approval ratings than the president. And we ought to remember that. So they can't afford to somehow or other seem to thwart the president who was elected with a huge majority, both electoral majority and uh, popular, popular vote. Um, so I think the language that is exchanged becomes important and how they do that. The other last thing I'll say about change, there are these millions of people that are part of the Obama network out there, largest grassroots political campaign in American history. And they're all on their emails and their Twitters and their SMSs on their cell phones. And they're going to be communicated with, and the Congress is going to hear from them again and again and again. And it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Me meaning what, Tom, exactly? That's what's new is the. How new does that get translated in terms of the actual work that you do? Uh, it, you, you can now, as Howard points out, you can now rely on a lot of grassroots support. Uh, you're not out there alone. Uh, you need uh, all those Twitters and iPods or whatever they are uh, uh, coming in to, to grant we're, we're your support. All old. <laughs> One area, Marvin, to, where they can improve uh, the system and do better is in confirmations. Uh, he must have his team aboard to start deciding issues and setting policy. Uh, and, and this problem of the continuing bickering over who's going to get confirmed and not confirmed and the 90 and 80 day checklists and what have you, uh, that has gotten uh, completely out of control. Uh, as if Steve can promote his book, I can promote my op-ed in the Washington Post two days ago, uh, talking about how to get confirmed. They need to have a system of getting confirmations in place. Uh, yeah, uh, if a guy is a scoundrel or a thief, fine. Uh, but they need to go through a better process. Case in point. You, you take a nominee for a cabinet post. He, rest, he has to fill out a form for the White House, the Office of Government Ethics, the job in which he's going, the Senate committee, and sometimes two committees. All five and six and seven of these forms are different. 
The question nuances are about the same, and they're close, but there are little <coughs> twits, twitches in it that they have, to, uh, they have to respond to. Get that process streamlined so we can get these people in place. It would be awful for the President of the United States to be in office uh, for longer than uh, uh, a week without a Secretary of Defense and a Secretary of State. Tom, I totally agree with you, and with all due respect, you could have said this not at a transformational moment, as we have right now. Yeah. I think we all agree with that. Everywhere. <laughs> what, I, what I'm probing for, if it exists at all, is there somewhere in this particular historic moment that cries out to you as an expert in Hill-White House relationships that we ought to do something totally different? We ought to mix it up. I don't what? think it's totally different. I think it gets back to what Howard said. It's relationships and back to what I said about the president-elect doing what he said he was going to do. And that's where some tension may come with his own party and with his own constituents and some of those people on Blackberries and Twitters that Howard referenced, which is, no, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to try to have a collaborative process. We will have our fights but we're going to try to bring everybody in because they represent constituents that have a right and a say-so to get things done. That in and of itself, I think, would be transformational. You know, it, there's always been arguments. I keep this ancient print in my office, which was the House floor, which I love because basically got people climbing over desks, you know, with canes <laughs> and screaming at each other quite clearly, and that's what the House is about. It's what Howard said, it's factions coming together to resolve issues. Uh, that's important, but there is a way to manage it better than it has been managed. No president's ever done it exactly the right way. It's impossible to because of the diversity of the country and the difference in the prerogatives of the two branches of government. You know, they're there to check and balance each other. But I really do think if you're sincere in what you say about working with people, and when I said friends before, I don't mean, you know, arm around you all the time, buddies. I'm talking about talking to people, having lines of communication, open all the time, it can be very different. Is there a particular... Except for one thing. Go ahead, Tom. I'll give you to the 4th of July before they're at each other's throats. They have different constituencies, different pressures, different people. Those people that got elected in the last uh, election by uh, the Obama coattails, the margins weren't that big. So they're going to be start looking toward their districts and see what brought me here. And if I want to stay here longer than a year or two, I better start paying attention to folks back home. And they're going to start hearing some, some pressures from home. Uh, it is not going to be as easy as it appears as we see, sit here today. Uh, the first 100 days uh, will come along. In the first place, uh, the 100 days reduces down to 50 because of vacations and recesses. Uh, there'll be uh, report cards. And oh my gosh, how'd he do? How didn't he do? Uh, but I think Howard and Necker both right to a point uh, until you start realizing those guys are going to figure out up on the hill what brung me to this party and I better be careful. Absolutely. But, but that presumes, Tom, that somehow or other not working with the president is what they need to do to satisfy their constituents. If the president maintains his popularity in the countryside, then the way for them to protect their political selves is to work with him. You're, you're assuming he's lost popularity and therefore they have to go watch out for their constituents uh, at his expense. Um, if he is able to sustain the momentum he has, then the political imperative is to go with him. And 
you, you, it may play out the way you're saying, but I, you know, just because that's some what recent experience, I don't think we should assume we're going to play that way this, this right now. It, you know, that's why I refer to 33 and, and 65, when there was sustained major legislation over, over a whole Congress. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I'm hopeful that things will be better than that. Um, we'll see. Nick, let's say that Tom is right, and by the end of February, there is not a past piece of legislation, right, on the stimulus bill. What would be your recommendation to then-President Obama? How do I get this Congress to move? What would you ask him or tell him or suggest to him that he do? That's, the, that's a difficult question to answer in the sense that that would depend largely on the facts on the table at the time. What was it that was holding up the bill? You know, was it, were Republicans saying in some group of Democrats that it, there was too much spending or too much embedded ongoing spending after the crisis had passed such that you'd never get rid of the costs again? Um, was it that the tax cuts weren't of the right nature? Uh, so it's hard. I think you just have to... Uh, they're professionals. I think they'll be able to figure it out on their own. I don't think they'll need the advice. They're going to know the sticking points, and what you have to do to get over it then is find a way to unstick the, you know, unstick the glue. That's not a very good answer, but it's, it's basically dependent upon what is there and figuring out what you need to do to get to 218 and to 51, assuming that it'll be 51 and not 60, or either way. It's just a matter of counting the votes. Can I, can I uh, enter there because... Uh, you suggest something uh, to me that I don't understand, uh, certainly most of the people, and that is how you do that. Uh, that is, we've had a very interesting conversation uh, up to this point, but the point is, you, you run a shop in the White House. How often do you see the president? What do you tell them? How do you meet with them? Who works for you? How do you divide the people up? Do you cut them ha some half, uh, uh, go to the House, come to the Senate? How do they report? Where do you spend your days? G give us some sense of what it really is like to be the Director of Legislative Affairs for the President of the United States. And the part, Tom, when you were in charge of this operation, that takes us back further than with the other two gentlemen. How many people did you have working with you? One more, one person in the Senate and three in the House. So you had four people yeah, overall? Five total. Five overall. That's right. Nick, when you were there? Uh, the second time I was there, I had three deputies, as Howard did. One, the inside deputy, the traffic cop for all the paperwork and the meetings uh, in the cabinet, and then a House deputy and a Senate deputy. And we ended up, this time, uh, with four special assistants working for the uh, House deputy, or five working for the House deputy, and four working for the Senate deputy. So were we up to about 12, 13 now? Yeah. Howard? Well, we were before this last one, so we were a little bit smaller than that. Uh, we had uh, the three deputies, as Nick said, and we had, in addition, three special assistants on the House and the Senate. So three, six, nine, ten, including myself. So in other plus, words, plus, plus some staff assistance, but in terms of lobbyists, it was 10 total. So the operation itself, almost by definition, has double, tripled in size. Well, well, but, 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 the, the departments all work for you, theoretically. Legislative affairs people in HHS, defense, state, everywhere, all work for the cause. So you can draw on them. There's no reason for the White House congressional relations person to go uh, worry about the budget for the Small Business Administration that you're called in at the White House when they get in trouble or when there's some big cosmic issue where the president has expended capital. 
And the president expends capital on vetoes, treaties, stimulus, uh, those kinds of things. That's when the White House goes in and you draw on all of the departments. The agriculture congressional relations person may have a relationship with the chairman of the Ag Committee, and you're talking about an auto bailout bill. Well, he's got to help the president with his cause. Okay, in that case, how does your day function? To get to Steve Hess's question, really. Do you start the day with the president every day? No. How did it work with you, Nick? Senior, sta senior staff. I mean, the, 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 I think it's traditional in uh, White Houses for as long as I've been either doing it or reading about it, that there was a senior staff meeting in the morning with the White House Chief of Staff and some reasonable number of the most senior people. So what is your access to the president himself? Uh, when I worked for Bill Clinton, uh, he was readily accessible. I mean, the, 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 the deal we had uh, included walk-in privileges. Uh, so walking meaning? He'd be able to go to the Oval Office whenever I needed to. He was, he was totally accessible. He was engaged with the Congress. Um, it was, he, was, he was actually wonderful to work for in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, in that I, respect? Well, in, 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 <laughs> I think I think a lot of people I, had privileges. I, I think a lot of people wonder. <laughs> Ooh. I, I think I think a lot of people who work uh, in the White House. There are uh, probably uh, as many as fifteen people with the senior title, which is assistant to the president. Doesn't sound fancy, but that's the, that's the title you aspire to. And the question is, how many of them? deal directly with him, how many go through the chief of staff for their work is always an issue. Um, in my experience and also in what I know about recent other administrations, the presidents have been pretty, pretty willing to deal with the congressional relations people directly and to respond to them. But in answer to your question and Steve's, you've got 535 constituents on Capitol Hill and you need to represent them, as Steve suggested in the introduction, to the administration. Not just to the president, but to the administration. They come to you or to your people with every complaint, ache, White House tour, constituent issue that you can imagine. And you somehow they need to be responsive to them because you're never sure which one could be in a key spot to help on an important vote. So all the time you're representing the president to the Hill, you're becoming a caseworker for all these 535 members of Congress to the administration. And so it, it, this is very much a two-way street. Pennsylvania Avenue is one of the few city streets in the city that still goes both ways. Okay, mm -hmm. a lot of one-way streets, that's two ways. Mm -hmm. And you need to remember that, not ever lose sight of it if you're gonna do this job correctly. Uh, you need to spend some of your day on the Hill. Uh, you need to be uh, talking to key individuals. Now they may be the leadership, they may be a key committee chair, but it could be the head of one of the caucuses it could be somebody who's particularly close to the president, maybe somebody who's carrying an important piece of legislation. Um, but you need to be on the Hill part of the day. People need to know that, that you're you not know. hiding in the White House. And if you stay in your office too much of the time, it works against you. On the other hand, here's the tension. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not in the White House, you may, be not, you may not be in certain meetings that you really want to be in to have a voice about, no, you can't do that because Congressman Smith or Senator Jones is too important and you shouldn't be doing it. So, you, so you're constantly tugged and pulled. And that's why you need a staff. Nick, is it then a function of the squeaky wheel, the wheel that makes a lot of noise is the, is the senator or the congressman or the caucus that's going to get your attention? No, not necessarily. There are some who are better than that. 
are better at that than others, and you can hardly afford to ignore them because, as Howard said, you never know when you're going to be looking for the vote. So you spend time with them, but you try not, you try to make it so there aren't squeaky wheels, and you deal with the people, you deal with you know whatever the issue du jour is, uh, the committee chairman, the leadership. I mean, everybody had fairly not carefully defined roles by any stretch, but you know I would spend part of my day with the House leadership, part of the day with the Senate leadership, part of the day at the White House, but going back and forth and back and forth all the time, a lot of phone work. Meanwhile, my deputies, uh, one planted again inside the White House, uh, and the other spending almost full time up on the House side or the Senate side, and you have your people up there all the time. Basically, they live up there. They look like the statues in the hall. Members walk down the hall. They see these people, the staff see them. They're always familiar faces. It's kind of a joke. You leave the White House and you go back and people come up to you and start complaining about something and ask for your help because they assume that you're still there. You become natural. That's how you keep your finger on the pulse, gather the intelligence so you can do what Howard references, a two-way. You know, it was Bryce Harlow's famous phrase, um, an ambulatory bridge across a constitutional gulf is how he described the Legislative Affairs Office. You spend part of your day at the White House with them telling you, you go tell, people say, you go tell them, you go tell them, and then you go up and people just say, you go tell them, you go tell him, and your job is to just kind of inch people together a little bit so that you can find the common ground to, again, get to 218 or 51 or 60. Tom, what is the toughest part of the job? Time. Time. Uh, Nick just described uh, a third of the time on the Hill, a third of the time in the Senate, a third of the time in the House, a third of the time at the White House, and pretty soon it's 10 o'clock at night. Uh, time and priorities, uh, plus the pressures of, as Howard said, uh, half your job is spent explaining the White House to the Congress, and the other half explaining the Congress to the White House. That's why it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out with so many Hill people in the administration mm -hmm. so far, mm -hmm. and not only from staff, from the vice president, from the uh, cabinet that has been chosen. Uh, the problem that you face is the separation of power issue. Uh, too many times, when you cross that line along about 8th or 9th Street on the way to the White House to take that job, uh, you have crossed the line. You are now them, uh, and we are us. So the bridge that uh, that uh, Nick and Bryce Harlow talk about uh, has to be uh, an open without a toll in it uh, so that you can uh, at least explain, uh, get your points across, points of view across. Uh, the worst thing you can do is you sit there and you get 25, 30 phone calls uh, after lunch. Uh, how do you answer them? Uh, if you ignore them, it's, uh, oh my God, the White House has forgotten us. Uh, they haven't called Dianne Feinstein with the name of the new CIA director. Uh, things are going to fall in cracks. So time and priority is the biggest uh, problem that you face. But you last question. You're down to that last vote that you need. What do you do? How do you get it? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> I do. Uh, it, <laughs> the answer is, is you, you, you do business. I mean, the, the simple fact of the matter is um, the classic in the Clinton administration would have been the passage of the economic plan in 1993. There were no Republican votes in the House, in the Senate, at any juncture for the economic plan. Uh, they told President Clinton the second day in office, 
that if there are revenue in the bill, you will not get a vote. Well, that meant if there's a single tax increase, we're not going to help you. This was a reaction to uh, Bush 41 uh, departing from his no tax pledge and the consequences of it, and the Republican Party reacted intensely to that in 93. It meant that the, we had to pass the economic plan with Democratic votes only, which made every member of the Democratic caucus in the House and the Senate uh, independent businessmen negotiating terms. And we negotiated terms on a retail basis with a lot of them, very frankly. Uh, they had issues in their districts or their states. They had people they wanted to have appointed to certain jobs. And uh, you do horse trading. And, uh, you know, anybody who pretends that you don't do horse trading with the Congress is, is, is not being truthful with you. And the except horse maybe trading... Nick, except maybe Nick never did it. No, it's you, <laughs> Howard. You're the one who does the horse well, trading. Yeah, you do it. You, you may use others. Tom spoke about having members of the cabinet help so that if you find out in Tom's example that the Secretary of Agriculture is, I mean, the, the, the Chairman of the Agriculture Committee is uncertain vote on some other issue, the person who may be most able to talk to him for Could the be. White House turns out to be the Secretary of Agriculture. Right. So, but you're directing. Now, you're either doing it yourself or you're managing it and you're, and, you're, and you're ticking it off. But we had a policy, which I assume Tom and Nick did as well, that on really, really difficult votes, we needed a minimum of two independent confirmations of the vote before we'd call the roll. You just what do you mean by that? Well, you, you can't rely on a member of Congress telling one person, okay, or I'm with you, on a very crucial vote, on, a, on, on the really crucial votes, things like passing the Clinton economic plan by one vote. You need two independent commitments from independent, any- Independent meaning what? Out sep of the Congress? Sep no, separately, we need the member of Congress to have an independent conversation with two different people from the administration confirming that that vote is secure. Mm. Um, and, and you keep track of where the, it's, it's so coming from. Another way, uh, if 51 senators say, I'm with you if needed, you've got a problem. Nick, what about the problem posed by the new media? Um, when Tom was doing this job, he wasn't disturbed by a 24-hour cycle, by the internet, by all of this, these various gadgets that are used today. Um, and there are many different ways in which reporters function, and everything has to be out there as quickly as possible. Does that affect the way in which you do your job? Yes. How? Uh, in all sorts of ways. I think it's been one of the most significant developments over time, and probably, no, not probably, definitely not a positive one. It exacerbates or accentuates all the diversity and all the problems and differences that people have, because it's better to throw red meat than it is to talk about gray nuances on issues. And it highlights the differences between people. I think it's changed the way members of Congress operate. I think it's changed the way that they deal with each other. Uh, there was a time, and you know, we're all old enough to remember this, where members of Congress would argue with each other all day long. And they would go out drinking or having dinner together at night and talk to each other. And there would be more, greater dialogue and greater communication amongst themselves on really difficult issues. I've seen that, in my personal view, dissipate over time. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the media glare. You know, you can't be a half-wayer anymore. You know, it, a lot of people would argue just the reverse, that all of this new technology and the new way, the new media, so to speak, has opened the world. It has made people more accessible, the system more accessible. The president-elect speaks about transparency, and I'm sure that that is going to make your life, what, infinitely more difficult, Tom? 
absolutely. Uh, an argument can be made from an old con conservative fuss budget like me uh, that you can get a lot more done in an executive session in a meeting where you don't have to showboat to the, the cameras and to what happens uh, because you can say, let the record show that I oppose this vigorously, now let's vote on it. Uh, you, can't do that at, you can't do that anymore in all the, the openness and the transparency that we have. That, uh, Nick's right, it, it, is not, it is not to the better government. Howard, not the, to the, the better government. There's a natural tension between uh, an increased uh, democratization, small d, uh, and the relationships which drive and lubricate the legislative process. Uh, and it's probably a healthy tension, but I think Nick and Tom are right. I think that uh, it's much more difficult for people to uh, work things out with this kind of transparency that you see now because people then seem to be compromising on the ideology or not hewing to the party line. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the legislative process is first of all incremental. It's a compromise, always a compromise. I mean, that you can't pass any legislation without somebody giving away something. It's a, it doesn't happen the other way. And so putting that in stark relief for the public, I think, makes it somewhat more difficult. I think uh, cable news is difficult. If, if you go back uh, uh, to the beginnings of the Clinton administration, uh, just uh, 16 years ago this week, there was the Zoe Baird nomination, mm -hmm. which failed in the first days of the administration to be attorney general, as you, you recall, Marvin. What did that in was radio talk. Mm -hmm. Oh, how antiquated is that? Okay? <laughs> Here we are. The technology has, has, has gone six generations since then to, to instantaneous uh, communication. But what happens then? with our capacity, I mean, we've talked about, there are a couple of large themes that have come up in the last 40 minutes or so, and transformational, the importance of the moment, everybody wants something to happen, and you seem to be describing a system that technologically is getting itself into a new kind of gridlock, which is not the old gridlock that you were talking about before, which is political. This has to do with journalism, and this has to do with reporters who are trying to get information for the public, the people who elect you into office. So what are you all describing? I find this rather terrifying. I don't think it's terrifying at all. It's just the process. It makes me feel better. I th well, <laughs> oh, I wasn't being critical of you, Marvin. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, look, it's, it's the process. It is, what it, it is what it is. I tell people all the time. You know, when they talk about gridlock with Congress, what we talked about earlier. Um, it's built into the system. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's not pretty. It's not easy, it's not smooth. And I still think we do better at it than anybody else in the world. And everybody's got their different agenda, everybody's got their different role to play. Uh, the media certainly has it, and it doesn't mean that it's, I'm not, I'm approaching it on a clinical basis. Does it make it more difficult to get the job done, which was the original question? I think the answer is definitely yes. Does it accentuate some of the ugliness that can be in the system? I think the answer is yes. And I think part of that is journalism, and I think you'd probably agree, I can't speak for you, but has changed somewhat. You know, profoundly, it's, you know, not somewhat, it's the, profoundly. It's the gotcha, and you know, if you're involved in an issue or you're watching or you know anything about it and you watch some of the reporting, there's no nuance. Sometimes it's just totally wrong, and it, it's remarkable that can it keeps on block, the air. Can this block, can this, what you're describing, can it block 
a piece of legislation as significant as the economic stimulus plan? I doubt it can block it, but it's but it can, it can make, make it more, more difficult. difficult. You know, if you pick up some issue somewhere, and I, I can't think of an example, maybe Howard or Tom can, of a piece of legislation where talk radio got on it or, you know, one side or the other on, on cable news got on it, and it picks up this fire, and then the bloggers start to go. Immigration. Let me ask another question, because we now know that technology has changed. A lot of things have changed the way uh, we've had to do business. You have to adjust to, the, to that. What about the people? What about, you, you've seen a lot of members of Congress for a very long time. Are they, have they changed? Are the same people being elected? Are they, same, are they staying in office in the same way? Do they care about the same things? What's changed with the system that you're having to deal Obviously, with? Obviously, uh, younger members are more comfortable with technology in general than older members. There are exceptions for sure, but in general that's the case. But it, it's, it's, it's about the institution, not about the people. The Congress is a permanent institution. It's ongoing. Presidents come and go. I remember vividly a conversation. And members come and go too. Well, that's really well, they, they they come and go a lot slower than than presidents. <laughs> um, I, I remember the first time I brought uh, uh, then appropriations chairman William Natcher to meet Bill Clinton. They'd never met before. He was chairman of the appropriations committee, and they got on well. It was a very important meeting, and Chairman Natcher turned to him and said, "You're my ninth president. I'm going to help you." <laughs> and, uh, and I remember the moment vividly. And, and there are a bunch of folks up there that could say to President Obama, not that you're my ninth or even tenth or eleventh president now. And so um, the, the institution is ongoing. The technology may change. There was a time when televising Senate and House proceedings was absolutely impossible. Sure. I remember when Robert C. Byrd railed against it. Russell Long was going to you know, it's going to destroy the ability to have good debate. People would perform to the cameras. Oh, we're on C-SPAN today, and we know, guess what, it works. Okay, <laughs> the system works. So I, I think we can overstate technology, okay, as an impact. We have, in congressional relations, a system which the Founding Fathers brilliantly put together, which labors well along to these days. It is a separation of powers. It is a juxtaposed set of relationships. It requires personal dealings back and forth. There will be raised voices at times, and there will be camaraderie at times. And we'll just adapt to what the technology gives us, but it doesn't change what's going on in town if one has a proper perspective. Yeah, but I wasn't just thinking about technology. What about money? What does it cost to get elected? How do you raise the money? How much time does a member of Congress have to spend raising money as opposed to when we, you started, Tom? Uh, what does it mean that they have to raise all that, that money now? Uh, so there are other things that, that I'm asking if they affect what you see in Congress as, as you know it more intimately than any other three people we could find. Unfortunately, money has become such a big factor. The minute someone is elected, he's already trying to raise money for his next election. The whole, many times the sole purpose of which is to have two or three million dollars in the bank so that the opposition can say, oh, I can't run against him. Uh, and uh, it, to next point too, uh, that the technology and the charisma that a person has, and his television time that he has to uh, to buy for his campaign, uh, they're constantly running for office, and it has not made the system any better uh, for uh, the dinners and the families getting together at night. They're running home, 
uh, to go to the latest fundraiser. The money has not been uh, has not been a, a positive uh, feature of all this. I don't know the second answer. I'm certainly not for public financing, uh, and nor am I for uh, uh, ceilings on how much someone can spend. Uh, if I want to, five of us want to buy a billboard that says "Vote for Howard," uh, that's fine. That's our prerogative. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it is so far out of control uh, and, and how they're spending money. Are there are people having fundraisers starting next week. Next week, it's not even in session yet. Amazing. I, I want to say that we've got about, um, about 30 minutes to go, and if any of you has a question, please come to the microphone right in front, and I will recognize you at that point. The question that I had is you have all worked for a president or even a couple of presidents. Um, does Obama resemble anybody that you have ever worked with? So far, he resembles Reagan. In what way? By running up to the hill, by uh, talking to him. Uh, <clears throat> I remember Reagan and Tip O'Neill, I first took them up to meet each other. A couple old Irishmen put their arms around each other and. Never mind during the day, they're yelling at each other over some policy thing. <coughs> at night, they're drinking a highball, uh, uh, talking about old, telling each other old Irish stories. I think Obama, uh, being a Senate person, and uh, he's going to have a lot of help from Biden, and he's going to have a lot of help from uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel, I think uh, the, the, so far, he's got him eaten out of his hand. And President Reagan, uh, during the transition, I remember well, had him reading out of his hand, going around smiling at everybody. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, on the other hand, uh, comparing him to Nixon, uh, Timmons will tell you, our old leader in congressional affairs, we had a hell of a time getting Nixon to even talk to the Congress. Really? Oh, man, it was tough. Uh, we had a dragging... What was his attitude? Oh, there's those SOBs on the Hill. Uh. Uh, and his, uh, we had a dragging screaming into leadership meetings to tell him that the Vietnam War was over. Uh, it was tough, and yeah, he knew he had to do it, and I, I, I'm not sure about what I'm about to say again. It cost him. Uh, his relationships were not good. President Bush, the current President Bush, uh, the whole White House apparatus uh, took an anti-Congress attitude. Never mind they were at each other's throats early on over whatever issues you want to talk about. Uh, but uh, Obama... Uh, he has the makings of a, of a personal congressional relations person. We go to the, uh, you could identify yourself and give us a question. Uh, I'm Chris Arditon from GW, uh, and I wanted to know, you've spoken about sometimes when there's tensions between two aspects of the job. When there are overlaps in uncertainties about committee jurisdiction, to what extent can the White House intervene effectively and play a role in decisions about which committee is going to take the lead on a particular piece of legislation? Not on my watch. Not on my <laughs> watch either. Oh, sir. Very carefully. That's like I the White House getting involved in a leadership that's a, race. That's the third rail. It's a prescription for disaster. You, the, the, one of the interesting things that we didn't talk about, and, and it comes off of this question a little bit, is how the Congress has changed. We haven't talked about that very much. Yeah. We have, at this moment, as strong a speaker as any of us have seen in our lifetime. She has, Speaker Pelosi has consolidated power in a <coughs> remarkable manner. And one thing she's going to resist is the White House disintermediating her by dealing directly with the members of Congress. Now, they will. Eh, 
and the members of Congress will demand it. But she, her message is she wants stuff to come through her. And the last thing one wants to do is get themselves from the White House perspective caught up in internal congressional battles. That, you know, they, that, that's not my job. I don't get involved with that. Uh, the institutional prerogatives are such that it would be out of order, very frankly, to do that. Uh, particularly with the kind of strong speaker we have. There's, there's really, I don't think, uh, you know, you go, we go back amongst us to Tom's work with, with President Nixon, and, and, and I, there's been no time. I mean, you gotta go back, uh, maybe even to, into Joe Cannon to get this kind of powerful speaker. She is in charge of the House, and make no mistake about it. Is that a function of her personality, the, the idea that she comes from San Francisco, does that give her any special clout? I think she comes from Baltimore, it gives her special clout. She comes clout. from Baltimore. She, she has some good, good big city politics. <laughs> yes, ma'am, please. I'm Beverly, whoops. I'm Shorts and I have broken the microphone. Um, I'm Beverly Thompson. I'm from the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda. And um, my question has to do with the issue of raising money. I was actually approached last week by phone to um, contribute to the 2010 congressional committee for my party, and they, one of the reasons they said was because the other party was already doing it. So um, I was just shocked. I'm still barely getting over the election as it is. But how has this, how does the fact that members are running essentially all the time now have changed, uh, or how does that affect your ability at the White House to interact with Congress? I would imagine in the past, the second year was when people started running, but now, as you say, they are running all the time. Sort of a permanent, permanent campaign, right? I think that's correct. It is a permanent campaign. And it used to be there was a time when you would wait at least until the fall, you know, so you were a year out to start fundraising. That kind of break doesn't occur anymore. And particularly the committees, and this again gets back to technology in some ways, you know, they've got you pinpointed. And they've got your name on a list, and then the list gets sold. So you constantly get calls at home. And, you know, they can you blame it on whatever you want, but everybody just wants the money. They want to get it early. And that's not only between the parties, that's intra-party, between the Democratic National Committee, the Senatorial Committee, and the Congressional Committee. You know, it, it works that way, so. Part of this money problem, though, is a result of reform. And it's useful to remember that. There are two big reforms we've gone through in the last 30 years that have got us where we're here. One is the... Uh, internal congressional reforms which provide that people can't share more than one committee or more than one committee and one subcommittee. So now we have 250 members of the House and probably 125 of them chair a committee or a subcommittee. It creates a power base from which to raise money from interest groups that didn't exist when somebody could chair two or three different subcommittees. There were just fewer chairmen, fewer people with that authority. So this um, uh, breaking up of power in the House has given more people the ability to raise money. The second issue is we have taken away the ability of a small number of people to raise money for individuals. If you uh, recall, and I bet everybody in this panel has read Robert Carroll's history of Lyndon Johnson, how Lyndon Johnson, when he ran the Congressional Committee in the House, was raising money and challenging it to people in a way you can't do anymore, okay? And amassed his power that way and used it to ultimately to move to the Senate and to the White House. Um, the ability of a president to direct money, frankly, is, is it's limited from what it used to be. It used but to be a lot easier. you turn to those 10 million people who were hooked in to the Obama internet campaign. And, and it may be that, that, that he can do some of that. It will be interesting to see the extent to which he's willing to do that when he 
figures how much he's going to need to get reelected in four years. Uh, but he may be able to do some of that if he wants. The DNC, if he gives his list to the DNC, which he doesn't have to do, by the way. No, but what I'm getting at is that Obama has already proven that you can raise money this way. Yes. As and an individual. Dean, four years ago, did the same thing. Didn't but, work for him. But I guess the question is whether or not um, a small number of leaders or the president can raise money the way they did 40 or 50 years ago and ensure, you know, Congressman Hess will fund the campaign, don't worry about it. Uh -huh. And they, one could say that in those days. There weren't the limits on how much you could take from individuals. Cash was legal. And we reformed ourselves in this transparent new universe to a point where we really have made every member of Congress a sole entrepreneur in fundraising. And this is a reform we created, but then it leads to this perpetual fundraising that Nick talks about. To Howard's point as well on this reform business, the other thing that's happened, I remember showing my age in my day, Wilbur Mills, Russell Long, and uh, Nixon or Lyndon Johnson had get together, and those three guys could pass a tax bill. The power of the committee chairman uh, has been diffused all over the place by the reforms, by transparency, by what have you. Uh, so now you have, uh, uh, you, need, you need really 51 and 200 and whatever it is, 218 in the House to pass to pass things, the power of the leader, Sam Rayburn. Uh, uh, if he wanted some, it passed. Uh, the same thing used to happen uh, with Lyndon Johnson. You know, read the history books about how powerful he was in the Senate. But Tom, um, Speaker Pelosi wanted an end to the Iraq war. Uh, over the last two, three years, she's made that very clear, uh, the two years that she's been Speaker. And yet she was not able to do that. So that the power, maybe this is proof of what you're all saying, that the power has been so diminished as a result of all of these factors that even somebody who is the speaker, and Howard, you were talking about the way she uses that power, but there are limitations that are on this. There are always going to be limitations. Uh, uh, it's when you cross the threshold between uh, the survival of your colleagues or not, what Tom spoke about at the beginning of our conversation. At the point at which somebody's worried about their own survival, they're not going to follow their president or their leader. Okay. Let's get this gentleman. Question, please. Uh, Arthur Orkish with the Polish Embassy. Uh, my question pertains to the strong personalities that are uh, placed in various cabinet posts um, and to the point of the, the strength of the speaker as well. Um, recent developments, like, for example, Senator Feinstein's objection to the appointment of the CIA director or some reservations about it. What is your impression with how all of these strong personalities are going to interact like with President-elect Obama, specifically Secretary of State um, Hillary Clinton, in light of open-door policy, access, um, and formulating a foreign policy that is in line with a Democratic Congress? Thank yeah, you. For an hour of talking uh, about stuff ahead. I know nothing about, now I can answer a question I know something about. Um, <laughs> Senator Clinton is uh, an ultimate team player. Uh, she takes things very seriously. And she will be not only loyal to the president, she will execute his policy. She may fight vigorously inside the administration about a policy issue she feels strongly about. But he can go to bed every night with absolute confidence. And when he makes a decision, she will press it as vigorously as she can. Um, and she'll be a good advocate for him. Um, 
<laughs> I, I need to tell you that I was a Clinton person during this last primary session. And, uh, my candidate didn't win, but she'll be a great Secretary of State, and she'll be loyal. She was also, she was a good senator. She took care of New York. Uh, she's got, she's tough. Uh, the interesting thing to me is going to be the, <laughs> you sit there with Gates, very powerful Secretary of Defense, Senator Clinton, very powerful Secretary of State. Uh, you sit there with Joe Biden, Vice President of the United States. Uh, all, uh, and you sit there with Jim Jones. That's the toughest job in the White House. Uh, I feel sorry for the president. Who are these four people is he going to listen to that all have uh, smarts in that arena of the international field? Uh, that's going to fall to the National Security Advisor uh, to sift through all of these things and present a coherent policy to the president from which he can decide. Hopefully, they'll hammer it out among themselves. Bryce Harlow used to say, he said it to me when I'm at the White House, young man, your job is to keep the trash of government from the president. Hmm. Uh, so figure it out before, let the president think deep thoughts uh, so he can get his job done. Now, is that true for all presidents? Aren't some of them, like Jimmy Carter, for example, so desirous of even figuring out who plays tennis at a certain point on Marvin, the White the House tennis court? presidents bring into the job what they were before. Jimmy Carter was a nuclear physicist, nuclear sub submariner. What do nuclear physicists do? They've got to touch everything. They've got to figure out what, what's in this glass. Uh, Nixon was a lawyer. He liked legal pads to write down different things. Okay. Jerry Ford was a congressperson. What do congresspeople do? You say 10, you say 7, let's just try it on, on 8 and go <laughs> home. Uh, presidents and, and, and Clinton was a policy monk. He, liked, he was a governor. He liked to, to dig deep into spotted owls and, uh, and bank legislation. So presidents bring into the job what they were before, which is going to be an interesting thing to see what Obama is. Exactly. I was just wondering, what would be your sense of what he's going to do when he comes in? I, well, I, I think that's the, one, that's the remaining question about him. And I think right now he's managed it magnificently. He's got all these personalities. He's got them, you know, it's early. It could change, but he's got them running in the right direction. I think over time we will find out what kind of manager he is. And just because you have strong personalities doesn't mean they can't work together. You know, in terms of cabinet members, the, inevitably, in every administration, there are one or two that are outliers where you, you know, argue vigorously inside the White House, uh, you know, in the cabinet meetings or in the smaller meetings you have on policy issues. Everybody's right on the page and they will be right back to the Hill. And there is a danger in this administration for that because everybody has, not everybody, but so many of the cabinet members have an independent base on the Hill. And if I may take a digression here, because I want to get back to something that Howard said, because all of us are vested, you know, Democrats or Republicans in the Office of Legislative Affairs. The key, I think, to success for a president in many cases is his relations with Congress. That's obvious. But one of the keys to achieving that success is how the Office of Legislative Affairs is managed. And because every member of Congress will want to talk to the Vice President, the Chief of Staff, ch check off your list. And Howard's anecdote about Phil Shalero sitting up there with Larry Summers and the others speaks volumes because they have to, the President needs to empower 
his head of legislative affairs because then they can deal with the members. You don't want them going with the chief of staff all the time. Right. You want them to know that you speak for the president. You know, we had, a, it was a rule or a custom, it was Andy Card's idea, uh, and it was enforced. If the president got a call from a member of Congress, I would get a call from his office and usually find out what was going on. If Andy got a call, and if he took the call first, he would always say, have you talked to Nick? It speaks volumes. And they knew that I could go up and negotiate, and that if I said it was good, it was good. And if I said it wasn't going to fly, it wasn't going to fly. So, you know, there's a lot of strong players, a lot with Hill experience, but they've got a legislative affairs office that's going to have experience too, and they need to trust them and make them the buffer because you don't want to be answering the sure. questions in the first instance all the time. Let me ask you a question, Mick, and all the rest of it. Don't you, in the White House, because I've been on a couple of White House staffs, as you know, don't you uh, eventually become sort of the bad guys there? I mean, you're the people who are telling the rest of the staff they can't get that through Congress. It won't work that way. Uh, give me, uh, we've talked about your relations with a lot of things, members of Congress and so on. Give, give, give us more of a sense of your relation within the White House itself. Well, that's, that's a, an, an excellent question, an excellent point, and I, you know, I see all three of us are kind of smiling. Because it's true, you sit there in these meetings, well, why don't we just do this? Everybody, first of all, as a given baseline, everybody who works in the White House, from the administrative assistants on up, is a legislative affairs expert. And left to their own devices, they will go to the Hill, and left to their own devices, members of Congress will form shop. They'll go to the chief of staff, they'll go to the head of legislative affairs, and it is your job to say no, or to say what will fly and what won't fly. And there's many White Houses that have foundered on issues where they didn't trust the judgment of their legislative affairs people. Uh, in the case of Social Security in this White House, I would say candidly, I was gone already. But whenever the president pushed the issue uh, with the Republican leadership, Forgive the expression, there was a lot of crotch watching going on. Just sitting there like this. They wouldn't even acknowledge that he was talking about it for the most part. And after I left, the legislative affairs people kept saying, they're not going to buy, they're not going to buy. The president didn't take that opinion. He took someone else's opinion. The results were the start of his slide, really. Let's try to get a few more questions in, please. Sure. My name is Nick Trano from Georgetown University. Uh, Mr. Hess's book, he talks about how margins matter in Congress and the way the White House negotiates with Capitol Hill. Uh, but to what extent do you think the Obama administration needs to anticipate the margins in two or three congressional elections from now if they stand to lose seats if he's not on the ballot? And, and how does that play into the way that he does business with uh, Congress? What was the question? To, to what extent do, do you have to anticipate the margins yeah. that may be coming down that the road? That may come down the road two or three elections ahead? I mean, I mean the... The history is that in the first by-election after a large gain, that the party in power will lose seats. That's, that's the history. And guess what happened in 2002? You picked up. Okay? So the history, you know, that was after 9-11. It may have been related a little bit to 9-11. I don't know. But I think it was good legislative work on the Hill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah no harm in me agreeing with you. I don't care. But... Uh, um, Obama has to be sensitive to pushing his people in a manner which can cost seats in any significant number in 2010. Uh, and what will be reported on constantly is the loss of the Congress by the Democrats in the 1994 election, two years into the Clinton term. And that'll be the model against which Obama will be measured. 
You don't, don't do things that repeat what happened to us back in 1994. And when Democrats on the Hill don't want to follow Obama, they'll say, oh, no, we can't do that. Remember what happened in 94. And they'll hide behind that constantly. So it, it'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a factor. It'll be, it'll be an omnipresent factor in, in, in the back of their minds. And, it, and you know, it's one reason that uh, I think taxes figure so prominently in the economic stimulus bill, uh, to, to make sure that it is a bipartisan bill. You know, one of the lessons that we suffered in 93 was we passed a partisan uh, economic, economic package. And that was a good package, and it worked. And, you know, stand by the substance of it, but it was a partisan vote. This will not be a partisan vote. There will be Republican votes for this package. The other thing we haven't talked about for just a second, too, but to pick up uh, Nick and, and uh, Howard are saying is brilliant congressional relations is give Congress everything it wants every day. Uh, no, no, I won't, I won't compromise, I won't go halfway, no, I want it all. The other thing, like Nick points out, every member of Congress wants at least a half hour with the President every week to present his views. Uh, anything short of that, it's uh, the Congressional Relations Shop is a failure. Uh, that's just a slight exaggeration, and Howard and Nick will agree with me. This is what I meant at the very beginning when I asked you, how does a president divide up his day because the, the pull from the Congress, there are so many people up there and everybody's a great genius and there's a king or a queen, it's so demanding. <laughs> it, I mean, it would seem to me that the president is constantly saying, no, I don't have the time for it. No, because it's, you know, it's what Tom referenced, you know, it's your job, uh, I don't want to use the word trash, but, you know, we, we had a rule, it's, it's a matter of, it's not whether you want to see the president, whether you actually need to see the president and he needs to see you. And that all has to be managed. It's a difficult process because you have human beings involved and you have egos involved. But it's a process that from the chief of staff and the head of or legislative affairs have to be the chief managers of that process. It's the same thing with cabinet members, you know, because everybody wants to see the president. You know, you don't have to. I mean, you were talking about access before. I had access anytime I wanted it to this President Bush. It was a little different the first, first President Bush, I would say. Um, but you, all, you don't abuse it, and you use it when you have to or when you think you need to, um, but you do the same thing when you manage other people, you know, because they're also... But, but there are ways, Marvin, to do this efficiently. So you say uh, to the Chief of Staff and the scheduler, we need to invite all the freshmen, Republicans and Democrats, down for breakfast. We'll put them in the East Room of the State Dining Room one day. We'll put you bring big, in a group of them. A big, yeah. big U-shaped table. Then you give the president a note, briefing him on the thing, and say, here are three people you need to grab on the shoulder when you, when you have a chance. <laughs> so, you, but you're inviting all the freshmen. You're not distinguishing among, among them, because that would be a real mistake. I mean, one of the rules of inviting people to the White House is there's always a rational group. It's not ad hoc. It's the Republican members of this committee or the Democratic members of that committee or the bipartisan group from here. But it's never, you know, let's invite Marvin and Tom in for a meeting because people will say, how come they got in? Okay? So it's always a, it's a category. But you, you, can, you can get a lot done in a little time with a really good political president and use your time efficiently. Let's get this question here, please. Thanks Two for questions. Being, okay. Thanks for being here, gentlemen. It's been a really interesting conversation. My name is Kalita Bach. I work for a national nonprofit association, but today, obviously, I'm uh, here as an individual citizen. President-elect Obama has said that uh, anyone who has been a registered lobbyist in the past couple of years will not be uh, eligible for a political appointee position in his administration. And I'm curious, uh, over the administrations that you've worked with, the number of people who have worked in the White House 
Office of uh, Congressional Affairs who were registered lobbyists, and what, if any, impact do you think that his statement will make on kind of the future of his administration? Nick, I'm electing you. I'm happy to do it because I was going to jump in. I disagree vehemently with the president-elect on this. I don't think that being a lobbyist should mark you put a black mark on your soul and a double mark on your soul. You know, we all are part of a fraternity. Um, we know people. We know how to get things done. We know the process. I think we do it in a very even-handed, in a very what upper-handed way. Uh, what's the word I want? Um, Proper. Yeah. Um, a, what was that? That was good. Yes. No. It, it's part of the process, and I think that you can suffer from it. You don't want people in jobs who have no experience with that job, and that's a danger. And I think you take people for what it is. You know, I think that any one of us um, up here would talk about public service in a way uh, that is meaningful. You know, you don't take it just to be at the White House. Hopefully you have some sense that public service is important and it gives you a chance to serve. And because someone has been in and out, for instance, I don't think that should be a disqualifier if you want highly qualified people who can help you get done what you want. Hopefully the, the rationale or the standard should be good person, highly professional, right instincts and right motives. I, I, want, I want to agree with Nick, and in answer to your question, I went from being a business lobbyist, I'd previously been a union lobbyist, uh, into the White House lobbying job. And President Clinton was criticized for giving me the job. And I was asked about that, and I said, would it have been better for him to pick a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to be his chief lobbyist? I mean, it, you know, it, it's silliness. So I'm delighted President Obama has arrived in town. I think he's going to be a great president. I think he's wrong on this issue. And I think uh, as I've watched Phil Shalero, who's really a good choice, 25-year Hill veteran and, and enormously well-respected by everybody, excellent choice. As I watch him assemble his team, I know it's a problem. And I know it was a problem for Mark Patterson, who's running the cabinet confirmation, putting together the several hundred people you need to handle all these confirmations at once. And so I think he's just plain wrong. And I don't think that being a lobbyist, which I was for many years, I have not now, but which I was for many years, I, I somehow don't think it was a bad thing to do. Okay, and let's get the last question in, please. My name is Dr. Einhorn. I'm a former fellow of uh, Georgetown and George Washington. Uh, I also admire Obama, but uh, I wonder how, you know, when Bush had a bad approval rate, Congress had half of that approval rate. The reason is they're somnolent, they are lethargic, they're absent. You just watch C-SPAN, and when there's a big uh, problem going on, you see about two or three people sitting in an empty uh, hall, and they're sleeping. Uh, do you think that Obama, after having skipped, uh, skimped the best of the Congress people for his cabinets and left the residue, that he will ever be able to wake them up and maybe put some order? Because we realize that legislators, as you mentioned, they have now to go and campaign. Our, there were, I think there were 15 people for two years for the presidential campaign, while paid by taxpayers' money and getting salaries, they were out campaigning for themselves. And so are all the other people. Okay. Is he going to be able to change that? 
Maybe because I'm You can old, tell us whether you can Because the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is a right. pessimist is Thank better you very informed, much, sir. and I'm wondering. Thank you. Congress has been in for a long time. Uh, there are a younger, more eager crowd. I think the, uh, the uh, uh, I don't want to say the smarts, but I guess that's what I mean, uh, has increased immensely. Uh, the term limits that some of them have put on themselves. Uh, you have a younger, eager, smarter, more educated uh, Congress coming in. Yeah, they're uh, sleeping uh, members of Congress, just like they're sleeping school teachers and sleeping uh, cops and what have you around the world. You're never going to change that. But I think uh, that the, I think that's an exaggeration, uh, your point uh, about that. Somehow, somehow it gets done. Somehow oh, it works. Yeah. Oh, it gets done, and there are a lot of wonderful people right. who are involved in public service. And Nick, you were making that point before. You wouldn't. Most people would not go into it if they didn't feel that they were making a contribution to the Absolutely. country with, their, right. with the work that they do. Let, I think, let me uh, ask one last question. Ahead, uh, because we know, thanks to Franklin Roosevelt, that at 100 days, the Obama presidency, like all other presidents, is going to be measured. Uh, and uh, on day 99, uh, every presidential historian will be called up and asked, uh, what do you think? How, how's, he, how's he doing? Where does he have to be at 100 days? Uh, how, give, give us some sense of, of the next year ahead, his first year in office. We know he starts with this great popularity. We know that there's much to be done. Uh, we, uh, where, where, give us your final judgment on... How would you start us off? Maybe a transformational president will break the rule that you have to be judged in 100 days. Maybe that would be the great, the great breakthrough. But do it in 30? <laughs> uh, the economic plan obviously has to be enacted, and people have to begin to see uh, some of the fruits of that. Uh, that'll be the single largest test. Uh, he's going to have to have taken some clear position on what he intends to do in Iraq and provided some direction and have the support of the uniformed services for what he's doing in Iraq. Um, remember, he ran as an anti-war president, and um, there are a lot of people out there waiting to see what he tends to do about it. But he has to do it in a way that keeps the uniformed services support. I think those are the, in, in terms of a short-term result, those are the two biggest issues. Nick? I, I agree with Howard, and I think it would be great if we could get past the 100-day thing, because the people asking the question will expect him to have done the uh, stimulus bill, the energy bill, the health care reform bill, and a few others just for good measure. And, you know, you can't get anything done. You can get things done, but you can't make a significant mark really in 100 days except in really extraordinary circumstances. And these may be extraordinary circumstances, but it's a false measurement. If he's making steady progress and he's got people involved and he's got cooperation between the parties going on, I think he'll be a huge success. Tom? First place, 100 days is on May 1st. You take out weekends and recesses, you're down to 53 days. Uh, by then, uh, there will be progress if he, uh, hopefully, he will have all of his people in place through the confirmation so that they can start working on some of these programs. Progress will be seen by how much we have done to push the problem along. None of these things. There are people complaining right now he's not even president. He hasn't done anything. Uh, so it's a false measurement. And one of the things that they've got to do is start knocking down this 100-day business. Uh, but it's an institutional issue that has to 
that we have to cope with. Uh, yeah, the stimulus package has to pass in some form. I still think it's going to take longer uh, than we think. Uh, he's got to have uh, some kind of an answer, and we haven't touched on it, on what he's going to be doing about the Middle East problem. That Gaza-Israel thing isn't going to end. Uh, so somehow or other, and, and mark my words, unfortunately, expect the unexpected. Somebody is going to test this president. Joe Biden was right. Putin's going to try something. Uh, the, the, the jihadists are going to try something. Somebody is going to test this president uh, to see uh, what he's made of. And I hope that we have the wherewithal uh, in the administration and in the government uh, to cope with that issue, unforeseen as it may be. And among the American people. And among the American people. Because it'll all come together. It'll all come together. Um, our time is up, and speaking only for myself, I think this has been a terrifically insightful, rich, substantive discussion, and I thank the three of you very, very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And I, I toss it to my colleagues, Well, Steve. I agree. I think we have all learned things we didn't know before, and boy, that's, uh, that does something <laughs> for <laughs> at a great university like this and throughout the, uh, the C-SPAN uh, network. Uh, I just should say, uh, beyond thanking our, our fabulous uh, trio here, the next session of this, the last session of our uh, uh, conversations with people who have been there uh, will be on uh, uh, January 15th uh, here at 4.30 to 6 again. Uh, this will be with speechwriters. We've had three congressional relations experts here. Then we will have four people uh, who wrote speeches for the President of the United States, uh, our last session before the President's uh, inaugural address. So I hope you'll be with us for that. Uh, and uh, my deepest thanks uh, to my three friends here.